This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Alexander Kiesling. He's the CEO of Quera. Alex is an expert in quantum computing with neutral atoms. At Harvard, he pioneered the development of programmable neutral atom arrays into a leading technology for quantum information processing. His accomplishments include creation of coherent control of systems for hundreds of neutral atom qubits, demonstration of high-fidelity entangling gates with neutral atoms, and observation of new quantum phases of matter. Alex's company, Quera Computing, is a neutral atoms-based quantum computing company located in Boston near Harvard University. The company was founded in 2018 based on this pioneering research at Harvard and MIT, and the company came out of stealth mode in November 2021 with $17 million in funding from Rakuten and other investors. So welcome, Alex, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great being here. Uh, I love the podcast and I'm honored to be in it. Well, thank you. I'm delighted that you're joining me. I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And to be candid, my objective is twofold. I want to give our audiences certainly a sense of what you did before you founded or joined Quera, but also to orient them more broadly to the fact that there are many different ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could please share with our listeners a bit about your background and path so far, where you grew up, maybe where you went to school and what you studied, and insight into the companies or organizations where you worked or conducted research. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, I I grew up in Mexico. I was born and raised in in Mexico, uh, Mexico City, and then Los Cabos, beautiful place to visit if you ever get the chance. Uh, It's still great going going back to see family there. I came to the U.S., actually already with with kind of an inclination towards physics and particularly quantum computing. I I read a little bit about it when I was in high school so many years ago, and I got extremely excited about the ideas behind it and what it could represent as a new technology. That's what led me to come to Boston, uh, and I've been here since, in 2009. I came to to Boston to do my undergraduate studies at MIT, and my focus was in physics. I realized that uh, there was a lot of really exciting developments in experimental physics that I thought were going to be really the the way to build these abstract entities that, that were called quantum computers. And I started getting involved with, you know, the ideas and the research and the experimental techniques while being at MIT. Finished my undergrad there. Yeah. It's so so it's been it's been a while <laughs> since yeah. I've been thinking about these topics uh and, and really working with with fantastic people. I spent a year after that doing research in Germany, continuing my preparation for, you know, building these large controlled scalable systems. Uh, this was in at the Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics right outside Munich. Also a wonderful place to be. But then I decided to come back to the Boston area for my graduate studies, uh, once again with, with the intention of focusing on 
creating quantum technologies that I could see within my lifetime becoming something useful and practical. I, I came back to the U.S. Uh, enrolled at Harvard for PhD here together with an really truly outstanding team of people. We started working on a very uh, an arguably simple idea of how do we take all of the wonderful tools that had been developed over the last 30 years or so, or even longer really, to control neutral atoms, and how do we make them refined enough so that we can extract all of the you know all of the hidden power of these of these neutral atoms to perform quantum computation yeah uh, so there were you know there were a lot of developments in in that direction and and it was a a very exciting time where we really built this platform and we showed very fast success with with it and that's when we decided that you know it was the right time the the technology was working well enough and the right decision was to continue to support it by bringing in people with very different backgrounds all passionate about building this technology and seeing it mature but also to put it in other people's hands and see what are we all going to do with quantum computers not just again as as these abstract entities that 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 I was thinking about in high school because they weren't really a reality, but with real hardware. So we were, we've also been focused on how do we put this in people's hands and allow them to use it as a platform to build their own applications. Yeah. And I want to give you a chance at the end to sort of wax philosophic and share more on that perspective. But I, the segue is I, I want to ask about, you know, how you came to be part of this company. Was there an aha moment Maybe a conversation in the lab. Maybe you had a brainstorm walking by the Charles River at sunset, or was it a longer process? <laughs> I think it was a little bit of all of the above. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, th there were multiple points of, of realization that what we were doing in the lab was was something very special. And you know, looking around, I saw that there was a there was an ecosystem that was being built around quantum computing. And that creates for a very unique opportunity for someone working directly with a technology in the context initially of research to look around and see that all of this is quite relevant to to the modern world, right? And and that people want this technology to to exist. And there's a there's in, in many ways a need for it. So having all of that in place led to the realization that, you know, it's it's the right time make this transition out of academia and, and into industry. And of course it took, you know, many conversations and and a lot of exploration, but it, it really was that that idea that, you know, we can make a difference in shaping this ecosystem by bringing to to life this new technology. No, very exciting. Other companies, including, and I'm naming names, Atom Computing, Coquanta, Pascal, and others are building quantum computers using neutral atoms. And I read that your neutral atom computer, um, Aquila, uses an innovative analog quantum processing mode that provides flexible reconfiguration of qubit positioning, a feature that's comparable to designing a new chip layout for each computation. Can you tell our listeners how this works? 
you're you're exactly right. This is one of the things that we're very excited about with with our first product, Aquila. The architecture that you're describing is something that, from the experience of building these systems for and operating these systems for years at the university before starting the the company, uh, we found that there is a lot of of power in matching applications to the things that hardware can do natively. Yeah. One way of doing this is by using this neutral atom platform that gives us the ability to directly trap atoms in a vacuum chamber. So to give you a little bit more context, the way that this works is that we have a little vacuum chamber where we have millions of, of atoms that we're injecting and using laser light, we can slow them down and effectively cool them down so that they're they're pretty much stationary. And then by using tightly focused lasers, we're able to pick them up and just control individual atoms in a vacuum. Now, because because the control is all optical and there's no manufacturing of a chip involved in the process, we can change the con the 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 configuration of this light, right? Like where do we have these tightly focused lasers? And that's where we're going to have our atoms, which are our qubits. So we can draw any pattern that we want, and then we can we can even move the atoms around within these patterns. This is a, a mode of operation that we call an FPQA, which is in an, an analogy to classical computing where we have field programmable gate arrays. We call this a field programmable qubit array. Hmm. And the beauty of this is that we can take, for example, a graph problem and without any overhead, redraw the same graph that we're interested in by putting all of our atomic qubits in the positions of the nodes of this graph. And therefore we can take very complex problems and encode them into the geometry of the of the processor itself and we can change this several times a second so that's that's kind of the that, that's the beginning of it and then to to solve these problems there are now many different approaches that you can take what we're offering to to the public right now through our flagship product aquila which is now available on the cloud to the general public through the bracket service we allow users to have uh, quite low level access to the, the 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 way that that the qubits interact and we do this by having analog controls rather than having a chopped up sequence of gates we allow users to define how all of the controls in the system will evolve in a as an analog signal this allows us uh, to explore problems where errors might kind of propagate out of control if you if you start deviating throughout the the computation even just a little bit but it turns out that in this analog mode of operation you can you can try to coerce the processor to keep these errors in a in a more healthy place where where the errors are not effectively compounding as much over time yeah so the combination of this fpqa with the analog operation gives you the ability to efficiently encode the problem that you're trying to solve, reducing that overhead, 
and also mitigate the, the effect of errors throughout the computation. Yeah. I, I want to talk about, so to continue on that thread uh, and talk about your roadmap and preparing for our conversation, um, I read that your roadmap provides a hybrid approach that delivers analog quantum computing value today and will be followed by a high-performance digital mode that will provide you know, more ultimate flexibility. Tell our listeners about this roadmap and how this approach is going to evolve. You're absolutely right. This this analog mode of operation we see as as an alternative to many of the existing uh, offers that that customers can can find. But we understand the importance of having the ability to have interoperability, for example, and uh, and offering users the ability to write algorithms using a a gate-based or digital approach is very important for us. We've done a lot of work on developing the tools necessary to do that efficiently and at scale with neutral atoms. This is something that we are building on the same platform. So it doesn't take building new devices to add functionality. And what we're going to be doing uh, first is to add this digital functionality alongside the analog capabilities. This will give users the ability to program the machine in a digital way, the same way that they would with other platforms, but to also leverage the capabilities of, of the analog mode of operation that we have nowadays. So you can think even of hybrid algorithms that use both simultaneously, where the the, the, all the qubits are initialized, then a particularly interesting state is prepared by using this analog evolution. And then that can be further processed using digital capabilities. So again, the idea is this analog quantum approach delivers value today, but then is scalable or malleable or um... yeah, and, and and one of the one of the very exciting things for us, both now, but also when when we were just getting the idea to start Quera, was that we're seeing very, very fast progress with this technology, with neutral atom processors specifically. You know, there are many challenges that the industry faces, of course, as a as a nascent technology. But on the technology itself, I think it's it's worth thinking about two different types of scaling that that we need to that we need to address okay. as we build towards these large fault tolerant uh, general purpose machines that we expect are going to continue to increase in power over time the first one of course is something that everyone is very very aware of which is how many qubits do we have right yeah. and 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 for this the the neutral atom platform even with the developments uh, here at the company, but also in, in a few other places at universities, has shown that increasing the number of qubits is, I'm going to say, relatively straightforward. When, when I started my work on this, we started with you know, controlling one or just a very small number of atoms. We quickly took this to over 50 within two years of starting to assemble the first instrument that we that we had at the university, and then that quickly grew to 256, which is what we're now offering to users on the cloud. So that that first part, the fact that the qubits 
in our system are given to us by nature. <laughs> we just need to hold on to them and also don't require extremely complex uh, systems with uh, you know, cryogenic fridges and so on. Increasing the number of qubits is, is something that we can do, again, in a more, more or less straightforward way. The second part is how do we keep building larger and larger systems where we need to control all of these qubits? And, and how, do we, how do we make this scalable? Because it's not just how many qubits are there, it's how many control lines effectively do we have? And this is an area where our roadmap is also very much centered around solving this problem. Because when I think about my laptop, you know, it has billions <laughs> of bits, but it doesn't have billions of cables coming in from the outside <laughs> yeah. to to the to the processor the way that we're solving these challenges and that we are going to build these larger and larger systems that that require fewer control lines than qubits is also something that is very important for our roadmap and uh, part of it is from having all of the control for our system be optical but it's also the ability that we can take these these atoms in in large quantities and we can move them around and this is something that is the the ease with which we can do this is is quite unique to the to the neutral atom platform so congratulations on um you mentioned you're on amazon bracket now so aquila is the first neutral atom quantum computer that's um you know available on their instantiation if you will can you tell our listeners how that relationship evolved and to the degree you can share without violating confidentiality agreements. So how are people using your computer in that environment? I mean, this is something that we're extremely happy about yeah. since, Bravo. since November of last year. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Very cool. Since November of, of last year, uh, Aquila, as you mentioned, is the, the first neutral atom processor to be available uh, to the general public through our cloud service. Uh, so far, it's still the only one. We we started working with AWS since early in the formation of the company, or, or you know, since since the early history of the company, and that was because we realized that we needed partners to fulfill this goal that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, where it's not just about building the technology; it really is about putting it in people's hands and creating value for them and allowing them to create value for themselves by by accessing these resources. We understood that the things that we're good at, <laughs> building the technology, finding the right applications for, the, for, for it, doing this matching between application software and hardware, this is what we needed to focus on. And, and looking at distribution, it, it just made sense to partner with the people that do it best. And in this case, uh, this is Amazon, uh, particularly AWS. So we we worked with them on understanding what are what is necessary to make a successful quantum cloud service and work uh, with customers. And this is also something that they already had in place. They had a, an existing customer base to understand what are the problems that they're trying to solve. What are the pain points in everyday life? But also for existing users of quantum computing, what are the areas where they want to see faster progress 
because I think that as fast as the as the environment is 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 evolving, there's still a need to demonstrate uh, you know the the value that that early stages of quantum computing can generate for people. Yeah. So it was it was crucial for us to have this partnership with AWS to understand user needs and to provide access to the systems. Can, uh, can you give me a sense of how people might be using it? Um, or do you have, is it too early to share or just curious? I mean, our listeners are always interested in, you know, to your point, how are people using this technology? And again, you partnered with a uh, sort of leading provider, AWS. So wondering, is it mostly research or are there customers using it for interesting projects? Yeah. Uh, there's, we're seeing actually quite a spread in terms of who's using it and for what. Uh, and this is uh, this is something that is, uh, again, uh, very very exciting to us to see that this the technology the the service has been very well received by customers. We we see of course a lot of usage for research. I think that these are at this point in time the most sophisticated uh, users of the technology. We are aware of, of groups across the world that are now using our device to tackle problems in areas such as optimization and simulating other physical systems. And I think this is an, a point where, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a really, really exciting point in time for the evolution of the of the industry because a system like Aquila with hundreds of qubits gives users access to something that is quite a unique resource. I think that researchers have identified this uh, already and, and they are exploiting it because simulating physical systems, particularly systems that are described by the laws of quantum mechanics using classical compute methods has limitations. And the reality is that we can we can accurately only simulate things that you know have about 50 particles or so. Um, this was, I guess, some time ago a, a big claim to the fame for achieving supremacy, right? But we have seen in in the research environment that there are emerging properties that are not accessible with with systems that are too small and being able to directly encode the 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 description of a system its quantum mechanical description into a quantum processor with low overhead is quite unique and it's leading to a lot of new understanding so that's that's the first set of customers the the yeah. research community yeah. but of course we're seeing also a lot of a lot of usage from commercial customers in automotive industry and in logistics, in uh, the energy sector, in finance, and they're they're mostly coming from groups that are from from institutions that have devoted resources to develop their internal quantum capabilities, and now they have access to this new system, and they are applying the the tools that they have developed to find new ways to solve the problems that they have been tackling with quantum computing so far. So as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the Japanese firm Rakuten, 
which is an internet services, e-commerce, and fintech company, is an investor. I think our listeners are always interested in, um, you know, relationships and strategic partnerships. Um, can you tell us more about, uh, you know, how you're uh, working with them? Uh, I, I mean, Rakuten is outstanding company. I think that they are, in in more ways than one, uh, visionaries for for the future of technology, and they haven't been they have been uh, quite open to exploring how are future technologies going to have an impact in their business. They have the the data, they have the use cases, and they are partnering with us to identify what are the highest impact applications for quantum technologies for them. Rakuten being such a large company that encompasses everything from you know, online marketing uh, to telecommunications, uh, you can be sure that they have many ideas and many directions in which uh, we are starting to partner. Fantastic. Wow. What a great, yeah, they have the data, they have the relationships, and they're supporting innovative technology. What a great combination. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really. You know, this is this is what we should all be striving for. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Alex, um, I read a white paper on your site, fascinating, describes how Aquila might be used to find optimal locations for coffee shops in Manhattan. I encourage our listeners to check it out. It's, it's a cool white paper. Um, and this seems to me like a logical approach to like the classic traveling salesman problem. Wondering, um, you know, how you came up with it, and also if you've implemented this kind of solution for any customers. This this type of problem is very much like the traveling salesman problem. Uh, there's there's a slight variation of it that we that we are particularly fond of, uh, known as the maximum independent set. It's also one of these very complex problems. Uh, the idea here, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that you know many times the things that we're trying to to solve, the hard problems that we're trying to solve, come down to some kind of description of of a graph, right? Like that's what you do with with traveling salesmen. That's what we do with with this maximum independence set, and that's exactly the type of problem that you need to solve when you're trying to design a network of any kind, whether that is placing stores, building, you know, antenna networks, reconfiguring an antenna network, uh, all of these things, they, they eventually come down to something that can be described as a graph. The powerful thing about this FPQA approach is that we can literally draw the graph. We can just move the atoms around in real space and create a graph. So, so we can take this, this, this idea of what are all the potential places in which we can we can place new we can place stores, let's say in Manhattan. We can then replicate what that looks like using our qubits, and then implement a quantum algorithm that allows us to find good solutions under different constraints. For example, we want to be servicing as many customers as possible without introducing unnecessary competition between different stores. And that is a that is a constraint that we can encode into the algorithm that we are using to solve the problem. So that's that's one way, you know, in in which you know, for example, logistics and similar problems also in finance arise. So this is something that we are 
actively working with customers to take their problems, rewrite them in a way that makes them amenable to be implemented on the hardware very efficiently and looking at two things, right? One is how good are the solutions that we can find for our customers? But the other thing that I think is very important to talk about is how do we help them understand not just what is the status of the technology as it exists today, but how can we project to the future as we build larger and more powerful machines? And by having the ability of encoding problems of very different sizes, we can look, for example, at the scaling of how good the, the solutions that we find as a function of how large and complex the problem gets. That way we can start thinking about what, we, what performance do we expect once we have a processor of not you know, 256, but over a thousand qubits. And we can help customers work with us to think through, you know, for the different use cases that they have, when can we project the inflection points for when quantum computing will be the right solutions for them. Alex, I want to uh, shift gears for a moment and get your take on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is workforce. I want to get your perspective on challenges facing a company like Quera and finding talent. So I'm wondering how you go about recruiting for your company. You're in Cambridge, so you have access to students at Harvard and MIT and other schools, you know, in the Boston area. Um, what are, how you do it? Are there roles in specific disciplines that are harder to fill than others? Can you give our listeners a sense of the process? Look, I think that uh, you, you, as you point out, we're in Boston, which is a great blessing for us. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes maybe a curse because Boston <laughs> is a tech city, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of talent here. There's a lot of experience in the area. And that allows us to be very close to the talent, but also compete with a lot of well, yeah. other, <laughs> a, lot know, of, a lot of I other mean, tech industries. Yeah, Google's there. Microsoft has a big presence on and on. I mean, it's other people yeah, and, and looking for smart people to hire. So. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So for us here at Quera, you know, the, the, the talent that we have at the company is the most valuable resource that we have because that is really what drives the innovation and what brings energy, enthusiasm, and momentum to the company. So we are very focused on bringing in the, 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 the highest talent to the company to help us grow. We've, we found that you know, for, for some of the very specific quantum backgrounds, it is very helpful to, to be close to Harvard and MIT to keep good relationships with both institutions and particularly the research groups there that are training the the new generations of uh, of very talented uh people that are joining the company but we're we're looking much beyond that right we we are also looking at bringing in people from very different backgrounds uh from computer science from uh different areas in engineering in electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, there again, it's it's very helpful to be close to the existing talent pool in Boston, thanks to all of the the tech industry here and the the startup culture. But at the end of the day, it is it is true that we need to do more workforce 
development. We do some of it here at the company, of course, by when we onboard people, uh, sharing a lot of know-how, sharing also the excitement about quantum computing and its potential. Uh, but internships are a great way for us to start bringing people in and getting them the right training, even while they're still in school. And we're seeing also a, a shift in, in local institutions to want to work with us on creating a stronger workforce uh, with, with undergraduate and graduate programs that have more exposure to quantum computing. Um, but even with all of that, I mean, Boston is only one city in the world. So yeah. we're, we're actively recruiting people to come to Boston uh, from all over the world and increase our talent pool here. Great. So I encourage our listeners to uh, go to your website and look for any open opportunities. We, we've come um, to the end, and I always like to close, Alex, by asking my guests to share their vision for where quantum computing might be in three, five, ten years, and just wax philosophic around what kind of impact you think <laughs> it's going to have more broadly on how we live and work. Oh, man. I, there's so much that we can say here, right? This will be on the test. <laughs> so much to say, so little time. Yeah. And it's uh, just your you know, first thought best, though. What, what's, your, what's your take? My take on this is that we're going to see quantum computing become a more mature, more powerful, and more relevant technology over the next few years. I think that there's a lot of excitement about it already. The understanding of its potential is already there. And the pace at which the technology is evolving is ever accelerating. We are now at an interesting point where with systems like, uh, like Aquila, uh, people have the ability to take their own know-how on, yes, of course, quantum computing, but also on on, on relevant problems to them and develop algorithms to try to solve them. I think that is an, an extremely important thing for the technology uh, and for the, for the industry in general, because, you know, as much as I'm talking about the talent pool at Quera and how, how we're looking for some of the smartest people in the world, we don't have a monopoly on good ideas. And I think that over the, the next few years, we're going to see more and more advances in developing algorithms for specific applications. I, I, I expect to start seeing signatures of advantages for quantum hardware over classical hardware in specific applications. Um, one of the ones that we're looking at nowadays is also machine learning and how quantum hardware can can increase the, our, our capabilities for machine learning. I also think that there's going to be much more that we will be able to do in the next, I don't know, you're asking three, five, 10 years. Once we get the technology to a more mature state and there's, there's a lot of, of, of conversation and excitement around the topic of quantum error correction. I think this is going to be a crucial tool in our toolkit to enable more and more applications. When making another comparison to to my laptop, right? Uh, when when I program with my laptop, 
I don't expect there to be errors. I expect that every time I, I, I interact with it, it has a predictable behavior. And to get quantum computers to that level, it is necessary that we develop error correction to enable the applications on this larger hardware, more powerful hardware that I was mentioning earlier. So that, you know, tying back to an earlier question, this is also a very important piece of our roadmap. I think I, I think that quantum computing is going to. There, I don't think that there will be a, a singular point in time when quantum computing becomes a mainstream technology. But I think that over the next, you know, three, five, 10 years that we're talking about, we're going to see it play a bigger role in first niche applications than in, in larger sectors and eventually in everyday life, probably in ways that I can't even predict today, right? Like, yeah. Ask me if you had asked me about the impact of the internet in the early '90s. I don't think that I would have been able to give you as rich a picture as what modern life looks like. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, Alex, we've come to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for sharing that perspective. A great way to close. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Me too. This has been great. Great. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn, uh, point them to the website. Um, also mention that you're on Twitter. Quera Computing uh, is the Twitter handle. And thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks again, Alex, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Alex. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.